0: Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, scientists trying to track how much the coronavirus is spreading are looking to wastewater.
1: Anything we're flushing down the toilet or is going down the drain does have potentially valuable information, and it can give it to us on a relatively wide
0: population scale. Aaron Lipp, a professor of environmental health science at the University of Georgia, joins me for more on this special type of disease surveillance. That's next.
1: Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org.
0: Looking for a COVID-19 outbreak? You might want to check the toilet. Scientists all over the country are turning to wastewater to track the spread of the coronavirus. Among them, Erin Lipp, a professor of environmental health science at the University of Georgia. She's with me now to talk about what our waste can tell us about how the pandemic is spreading. Erin, thanks for talking with me. And to start, how did you get into doing this work, particularly monitoring wastewater for the coronavirus?
1: So the idea of using wastewater as a tool to look at what's circulating in a population, whether it's drugs, pharmaceuticals, or pathogens has been around for a while. And my lab has actually done quite a bit of work sort of on the other end of this, trying to understand what may be leaking out of a wastewater treatment system and into nearby streams to understand contamination and potential health effects. So when we realized in the spring that the SARS coronavirus 2 could be excreted in feces and there was a growing sense that this is something that we could track in wastewater, basically my lab and very dedicated graduate students, we sort of decided we were going to jump into this for Athens. So at the time, the university had been shut down for about a month testing was still not as robust as I think anybody wanted it to be and this was a, an area that we felt like we could make a difference in terms of the pandemic. We had the skills in the lab to start looking at viruses. We've worked with wastewater before. So it was sort of jumping into something that was familiar but taking it in a different way.
0: And I want to talk about what this work actually looks like. And maybe if you can like walk me through the steps here. First, let's let's talk about kind of gathering samples, so kind of the work that happens outside of the lab, where do you go for this stuff? What does that work look like?
1: So we've been focusing at the plant level. So any town or community that has a wastewater treatment facility or water reclamation facility, all of the catchment lines, the sewer lines that run through a community are eventually going to make its way to that wastewater treatment plant. So we worked with the public utilities here in Athens to collect a sample basically as it's coming into the plant. So these treatment facilities are collecting this type of sample anyway. They need to do daily tests to understand what's coming into their plant. So they were able to share basically extra sample with us. The way that the plants collect it here in Athens is that they take a um, composite sample over a 24-hour period. So for each sample we get, we get a snapshot of a full 24 hours of the waste that's coming into the plant at the time. So the utilities pick that up for us, um, and then we go to the plants and collect those bottles to bring back to our
0: lab. What does the work in the lab actually look like? And I'm wondering, too, you you talk about, you know, a bottle of a 24-hour sample. I mean, what are you dealing with raw material-wise just with regards to volume? And then how do you all actually process that in the lab?
1: Right. So it's actually not that big of a volume. We get about 500 milliliters. So it's not, uh, you know, it's, it really is just taking a little bit of a sample over time. A sample coming into a wastewater treatment plant is probably doesn't look nearly as gross as you might imagine that it looks. It's a relatively turbid sample. We bring it into the lab. Um, once we get it into the lab, we have several things that we do. First of all, we have to operate in a biosafety level two capacity. So that means that everybody working with the sample has to have on appropriate personal protective equipment. So masks, face shields, double gloves, disposable coats, we work in a biosafety cabinet. And this is not specifically because of SARS-CoV-2, but because there's other things in sewage and wastewater that can potentially make somebody sick. So once we bring that into the lab, we have a, a series of protocols that we go through the samples are pretty much processed right away we take a subsample that's going to be analyzed immediately we filter down some of the sample so that we can basically store it on a filter membrane in the freezer we do spike it with a known virus so that we can keep track of what our recovery is as we go through the process and that process takes a couple of hours on the first day So we have samples that are archived and go into the freezer, and then some that we start working on right away for RNA extraction, and then for detection by reverse transcription quantitative polymerase chain reaction, the RT-qPCR, that's also used in diagnostic labs.
0: That's a um, term people might have heard, PCR. So... This is the kind of testing, we'll say, that's run on a sample that is pulled from a cotton swab, shoved deep up someone's nose. So you're actually doing the same kinds of of lab testing that public health labs are.
1: It's the same test. We use the same targets that the the CDC tests recommend. So it is virtually the same type of test. We're just doing it on a very different type of sample.
0: And you mentioned this biosecure lab. Is there an actual risk of people like yourself, your graduate students you're working with, catching the virus? I mean, is there a sense that SARS-CoV-2 can survive long enough in in those kinds of conditions where there is a risk of infection for y'all?
1: We handle these samples with the utmost care because we want to make sure that people aren't inadvertently exposed to anything that could make them sick. um, We follow the CDC guidelines for how to handle this in the lab. We work with our biosafety office to make sure that we're handling everything appropriately. The data so far don't indicate that there is a major risk of infection from sewage, at least in terms of SARS-CoV-2. The reports that have come out to date suggest that these viruses don't seem to be infective once they get into stool and sewage. There's been some anecdotal reports that have questioned that, but by and large, the risk of infection from these sources seems like it's low at this point, but we always want to be careful when we're dealing with these types of samples
0: people think about testing at the individual level. I'm showing symptoms. I go get a swab up my nose. I get results back about me. But what y'all are looking at is population level testing. So what kind of results do you get back? And, and how is that kind of different from this one-to-one testing that people are maybe used to?
1: Right. So, you know, our tools are the same. We're getting the same type of endpoint with, you know, a potential quantification of viruses from these samples. But it is quite different. So this is essentially pooling thousands of people at a time. So we're able to look, as you said, at a a population or community level. Where we think that we have the most value from these types of samplings is really looking at trends over time. So we're seeing concentrations increase. We can see concentrations decrease. Oftentimes the increases can precede the increases that we would see from clinical or diagnostic testing. And that's because we're able to sample everybody who's flushing their toilet. So whether they're symptomatic or not, whether they've gone out and gotten a test... So it gives us a broader view of what's happening for the whole community, and we're often able to see trends before we see them in the clinical data. One thing that we can't do yet, and this is, you know, I think a goal that everybody would like to have, is we can't tell you for any particular concentration how many people are sick in the community. All we can look really right now is at trends. Are they increasing? Or are they decreasing? You know, but not necessarily be able to pinpoint, you know, we have four people per 1,000 ill in this community.
0: So... You're maybe looking at changes above or below a baseline to say we're seeing an increased amount of SARS-CoV-2 in our sample, so we could expect that we should see a a coming spike in in diagnosed cases from from clinical testing. Do I have that right?
1: That's essentially what we're looking at. And, And of course, the more data we collect, the more confident we will feel in how predictive that is for what we've been doing so far our results suggest our increases in sewage generally precede increases in reported cases by about 7 days but this is really a brand new field so i you know i think we're all taking a little bit of this with a grain of salt seeing how it plays out but for the most part it's been quite good in terms of tracking what's coming ahead
0: especially with testing there's always the specter of getting a, a an inaccurate result we think of false negatives where you are sick but it's not registered or false positives, where you're told you're sick but you're not. Is that something that you all have to deal with, just thinking about kind of error around your testing?
1: We always have to think about that. When you're doing any type of test, whether it's diagnostic or you're doing surveillance from a sewage system, we always have to consider biases in our tests. So one issue that we have is that our sensitivity is not particularly High. So we need to have a fairly high number of viruses to be able to adequately detect them. And once we get above that point, we feel relatively confident. We do more controls and we probably do real samples to make sure that we're adequately reflecting what's what we're actually seeing. So we're very, very aware of those biases that are possible with this type of work. This is, again, an issue in anything that we're doing. We want to make sure that what we're reporting is is accurate, and we have to do a lot of controls to make sure that's the case.
0: Surveillance testing, especially the kind that you're doing that has maybe a little bit of a lead time on clinical testing, you really don't want to be ringing alarm bells uh, with your testing if you say are seven days ahead. I'm guessing kind of a nightmare scenario would be you see what you think is a coming spike in cases that then actually doesn't manifest. Is, is that something that you've thought about?
1: Oh, yes. We think about that a lot. So one thing that we've been doing with our work is we've been posting our weekly data to a tracker um, that we have at the University of Georgia. This is a very different way of doing science and research than I've ever done before. Um, and so putting that information out there in real time is Nerve wracking, but it's important that it's there. That's why we're doing the work is so that it's available and people can see it. We try to always include some context in terms of what we're seeing because we, you know, we cannot predict with absolute certainty that because we see a change or an uptick in viral concentrations that we're necessarily going to see an uptick in cases. So we try to include that context. We're increasingly working with our local health district so that they understand what we're doing and we're trying to make sure the information that we are providing is relevant for how they may react to those situations if it indicates that there may be a need to do more surveillance. But this is an area that I think is where the field is headed is really trying to understand when we get this information, how can it be best used?
0: Testing relies on people going to get Tested, whereas everyone uses the bathroom. So, how have you seen your results match up with test results that are coming from, say, the Department of Public Health or the university? And is there a kind of error baked into those clinical test results inherently because they require someone to, you know, get up the energy to get tested?
1: Right. So, we talked about biases earlier in terms of the method. When you're talking about The diagnostic part of it and the human surveillance, there's biases in who's going to get a test. And you're right, in terms of the wastewater surveillance, that's a bias that we don't have because everybody is using the toilet and at some point it's going to make its way to this wastewater treatment system. To your question in terms of how it's comparing, so far, so we've been doing this work, I think we're on week 23, and we have relatively good correlations between what we're seeing and the reported cases in terms of Department of Public Health, which is what we tend to be comparing to for our particular county. They trend relatively well together. My guess would be part of this is, you know, even though you have a relatively large asymptomatic population, there's going to be enough symptomatic people that are continuing to get tested that we're going to see the trends somewhat mirror each other. You know, we've been able to go back and we sort of highlight events that we think have been important in terms of public health. So we really started seeing our uptick in sewage levels not long after the bars started reopening on a limited level, at least in Athens is when we saw our initial increase. And then we actually started seeing a decrease in our sewage levels when the athens Clark County mask ordinance went into place. So I think, you know, when you can look back retrospectively, you can start targeting periods where you might have expected to, you have seen events that could affect transmission, and we can start seeing that in terms of the levels that we have in the sewage.
0: The University of Georgia was not alone um, as an institution of higher learning that saw a rise in cases as students returned back to classes. I mean, this is something that the CDC has observed on college campuses all over the country. Was that something that you picked up in your in your data, too?
1: So we really started seeing the numbers trend from going lower to going higher right around the beginning of August. So it preceded the opening of campus by a couple of weeks. I think this is because we had a lot of students moving back in to meet leases that started on August 1st. But once we got to the opening of campuses, when we saw some of the highest levels we had ever seen in our sewage samples. So we could see those events
0: as well from the start of the pandemic, we've heard this message from some officials, elected officials, that the more you test, the more you find. So people shouldn't go out and get tested. Thinking about the kind of biases that clinical testing has, it seems like there's a degree to which if you're monitoring the wastewater, y'all are going to be closer to the truth and will be able to kind of exclude the kind of influence of messaging like that.
1: You know, I say this, no pun intended, that the wastewater work has almost been like a gut check when we see results come in, because it doesn't have that bias in terms of people getting tested, it's never going to replace that because there's so much value that you get from testing an individual and being able to contact trace and isolate. But it does give you another layer of information to give you an idea of what's happening in your community that I think is going to be valuable. And I think it's going to be valuable on the other side of this, you know, where hopefully we don't have a lot of cases, um, which means you probably won't have a lot of people getting tested, that if you can continue monitoring the wastewater, it's going to give you an idea if if the numbers really are truly staying low or if you may have a, a problem coming up if they start picking up. So I think it's valuable now to see what's going on. But I think its value is really going to extend into the future.
0: How practical and scalable is this? You're doing this for athens Clark County. But is this the kind of public health intervention and kind of real mass surveillance at a very large scale that is, in fact, scalable uh, if we want to think about this being done all over the state or maybe even all over the country?
1: I think it is scalable. You're going to have to have certain equipment and certain people that are able to run these tests, but it's something that's certainly doable. The CDC is implementing a national wastewater surveillance system that they're starting to pilot in just a few states. So I think on a federal level, we're seeing the value in being able to incorporate these kinds of data and then moving it to a federal level and the ability to really start putting all of these surveillance programs in one place and assessing how well they're matching with case state I think is going to really improve our ability to really utilize this as a tool going forward. So it is scalable. I know just personally I interacted with, I think there's a group of about 500 of us now across the country that are that are doing this type of work. So it's happening organically. Um, there's a need for it. And as we go along, the methods are getting better. And, you know, I think it's really a matter of understanding the limitations of it, as well as the benefits and really keeping in check what exactly we can do with it. But I think it's a great tool to have in our, in our repertoire.
0: What y'all are really doing here is literally taking human waste and finding valuable information in it. Reflect on that for me. I mean, it just seems like maybe there's a contradiction there. This is, this is literal waste and you're getting such good information from it
1: there's an entire burgeoning field that's wastewater-based epidemiology. And and it's really been around for a while. And it sort of started out as trying to understand where there was issues with opioid use. But anything we're flushing down the toilet or is going down the drain does have potentially valuable information. And it can give it to us on a relatively wide population scale. So we're not identifying any particular people, but it's giving us an idea of what's happening in a community. And so it is a different way of looking at it because, yes, in my own work, I'm usually far more interested in making sure that that waste doesn't make its way somewhere where it shouldn't be because I'm worried about people getting exposed from swimming in contaminated water. But on the other side, yes, it's an interesting value-added proposition that we can actually use this waste to get an idea of the health of our communities.
0: Aaron Lib is a professor of environmental health science at the University of Georgia. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at... Wash your hands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening.